Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Well, it's been just over a month since the launch of the podcast, so that's kind of exciting. And as I said last time, it's been great to hear from a number of you who are listening, who are continuing to give me some feedback, letting me know what you are finding helpful and what you'd like to talk about in the future, what you'd like me to talk about, or maybe just feedback that I talk a bit too fast sometimes. So I appreciate that. I'm not sure if I'll be able to fix that immediately, but I'll work on it just for you. You um, you may or may not be aware, but as a part of the In The Shift project, I've also started up a blog. And so if you're interested in reading something from me weekly, then feel free to head along to intheshift.com. Over the past few weeks, I've been blogging through the intersection of life and faith with the journey of infertility and trying to start a family. So you may find it worth your time. And uh, while you're there, you can sign up for the monthly update email newsletter as well, if you like. I'm calling it Shifty Times because, you know, why not? Uh, but this will give you a bit of up-to-date information on what's happening within the shift, but also have links to resources and other stuff you could find helpful, maybe to listen to or to read uh, that might relate to or correlate to some of what we're talking about. So anyway, there you go. Check it out. Or of course, you can drop drop in through the usual social media places uh, and do all of that situation. Uh, anyway, on to today's podcast. Uh, I thought I'd start with a little story. In my final year of university, I moved into a flat in Auckland with a few friends of mine, six of us actually. It was a two-story house and we all lived on the upper floor which had six bedrooms and then the lower story was accessed down the bottom of the driveway and around the back and was rented out separately to us. And when we moved in there, there was a couple living down there that we didn't really know. Um, and then not long after we'd moved in, that couple moved out and a new tenant moved in downstairs and his name was Paco. And Paco was an older single man. He was a bit unkempt, his hair was greasy. And as we soon discovered, he had a love of playing the flamenco guitar, especially at three in the morning, much to the joy of my flatmate whose bedroom was immediately over his flat. Incidentally, that flatmate, now my wife. Uh, anyway, as time went by, it became increasingly clear that Paco was, you know, fairly unusual. Let's say that. He had two, he had these two old red European cars, I think they were Citroens of some kind, from the 1950s. And they took about 10 minutes to start every morning. Uh, and he'd go out at 6 in the morning every morning. And so there'd be this 10 minutes of revving the engine, trying to get it started, um... And then eventually he would get it going and he'd take off up the driveway with a screech. Uh, but then 10 minutes later he'd be back and then he'd go through the whole process again maybe half an hour later. You know, and we were six university students who were <laughs> all trying to sleep through our lectures. Uh, and so six in the morning, this was pretty exciting, uh, especially after the 3 a.m. flamenco guitar playing. Uh, anyway, we kind of adjusted over time, I guess. Anyway... As the kind of months and, and the year went on, it became clear that Paco was, yes, an amazing guitarist, but he also had some mental health challenges he was dealing with too. And he was, you know, in some way convinced that the CIA and the KGB had joined forces and become the CGB and were conspiring against him to take him out. And he also talked about these videos he was making and how the big TV stations felt really threatened by his work and were trying to run him off the road. And there were all of these conspiracies, these wild conspiracies. And so talking to him was always an interesting experience. Um, sometimes he 
suspected that we were a part of these various conspiracies, maybe that we were informants, you know, and so he would blame us for things and we'd have to try and convince him that no, 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 it was okay. And to be honest, on reflection, I I wasn't as sensitive to uh, his mental health challenges as, and maybe I didn't even recognise them as such when I was younger, um, as hopefully I would be now. Anyway, one day he knocked on the door and I opened it and he said that his second car had been stuck on the other side of the city and he wanted to know if I could come with him in his car, uh, his first car, and then drive the second car back for him. Now, to be honest, I was not keen. I was not keen on this situation at all. Uh, but unfortunately, I had been running this small group as a part of the church I was in, and I'd been talking a lot to everybody about the importance of living beyond yourself and helping those in need and you know, reaching out to people on the margins, I don't know, whatever language I was using at the time. And my flatmate, who was in this small group, was hovering behind the door, conveniently, as she heard me sort of umming and ahhing and trying to come up with a way to extricate myself from this situation without being too rude. And she whispers to me, this is what you're always talking about. You have to do it. And look, I had no answer to that, did I? So off I went. And what I discovered, that well, it was very unlikely that rival TV networks were trying to run uh, Paco off the road. It was very possible that he was capable of running himself off the road. Uh, we went over roundabouts, over raised median strips and all over the place to try and get to this car. I mean, I survived. I, I guess he survived driving like this all the time. Uh, but it wasn't really an experience I was keen to repeat. Um, a little bit after this, he actually gave us a book of his It was apparently about some work in his earlier life as a video artist. And to be honest, I didn't really give it much thought. I'm I'm not sure whether it was a book by him or whether it was a book about him or about his work. I don't even know how much of it I I looked at. Uh, And the author's name listed on the book wasn't actually Paco, it was Darcy. Anyway, years later, I had moved out and I found out that he had died, that he had passed away. And there was a write-up about him in the newspaper, actually. And it turns out that he really was a pioneering video artist of the 1970s. People talked about him as a revolutionary in video art. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And his original original name wasn't Paco, that was his flamenco guitar playing identity. But his real name was Darcy, Darcy Lang. And a couple of years after he passed away, the Tate Museum in London ended up holding an exhibition of his work. And in fact, his work continues to be shown and celebrated in exhibitions all around the world. And this, this I guess, all made me think. It's made me think about, I've thought about this a number of times since, uh, that everyone has a story. And when we encounter people, we're often oblivious to it. Like, I wish I'd been kinder to Paco. I really do. And not just because it turns out that he was a famous artist and, you know, that would have been cool. But really just because discovering his story reminded me that he was so much more than the way that I encountered him. There was so much more to him than just this odd guy who drove his cars at six in the morning. There was this whole life and story and journey and human being that was before me that I failed to see. So far on the podcast, we've been talking about belonging and community and spirituality and power dynamics. And in this episode, we are, I guess in a way, we're talking about this again, but we're going to talk about empathy. 
and about how empathy can call us into a different way of being in the world. So, this is episode four of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Today's podcast is titled Empathy, Apathy and the Problem with Objectification. One of the things that's become even more apparent to me as I've reflected on the first few episodes of this podcast and as I've listened to the feedback that has come in and as I've talked to people about it is how prevalent the fundamentalist binary black and white thinking can still be in religious, social and political spaces and then how difficult it can be to embrace different ways of being, new ways of being. And even in communities that perhaps seem more reasonable, there are still lines that cannot be crossed and beliefs that cannot be questioned and honest conversations that can just not be had. We find it so easy, so natural in many respects to fall into the trap of this kind of tribal ideology as a way to make sense of the world. And, you know, as we've already said, I think, in many respects what happens is that our sense of belonging is often enhanced through contrast, through difference, through what sets us apart from other people, through what makes us different and usually better than them. And often what happens when we do this is that the other becomes some kind of object. They become an it. They cease to be what we might call a subject, a person for whom we can have understanding and empathy, even in the place of conflict. And instead, they become those people. And often, you know, we use sweeping generalizations and categories to clump them together into groups and allow ourselves to diminish their humanness as a way of coping with the difference that we experience. When I was immersed in a more fundamentalist way of seeing the world, I often employed this language to talk about people outside of the club, outside of the world I inhabited, I guess. And so we often talked about people who lived in the church, like me, and then those who were in the world out there. Uh, And often we'd even just use that phrase, the world, to describe all sorts of things. You know, the world says this, and the world says that, and people in the world think this, and people in the world think that. Or maybe if people had left the church, they had lost their way. The favourite phrase in the Christian world is the backslider, you know, the person who has gone down the slippery slope away from faith. Uh, Or I even think about the way that when I was younger, I was taught to see see people in the LGBT community, you know, those people, part of that category, others out there, objects. And I think it's much easier in, in many respects to lack empathy when people are held at a distance like that. You've managed to lessen their humanity, which then allows you to feel okay about maybe some difficult things that you believe about those people. But I also notice that the temptation is the same still for me now as someone who's maybe no longer part of that particular way of seeing the world. I can still eat totally right off those people who think and believe in ways that I did not all that long ago, really. In fact, one of the things you can observe at the moment is how harsh sometimes progressive types can be towards people who hold to views that maybe they themselves held until the very, very recent past. I know that's a temptation I can fall into. So the question is, can we find some ways to maintain the humanness of the other? Because much of the exclusionary behaviour, much of the oppressive behaviour, even maybe the conflictual behaviour that occurs between us and disables our ability to have honest and genuine dialogue about the things we need to talk about, this comes about because we've developed ways to avoid seeing the true and full humanness of the other. And a lot of this can come back to what we believe really matters. You know, so for example, does being right matter more than relationships we have with people? And if so, how do we make those determinations or decisions? 
And then I guess what we believe about what really matters often relies on the kinds of things we believe about God because God and what we believe about God shapes so much of what we believe about what really matters. So uh, let's backtrack a little bit. We're going to take a little detour and reflect briefly on the way we think about God and then we're going to circle back around to see how this impacts on belonging, on exclusion, on objectification and dehumanization and a lack of empathy and maybe pose some alternative questions. So in the historic Christian tradition, the view of God relies in in many respects on the Judeo-Christian scriptures, right? So the Old Testament and the New Testament shape the view of God that is embraced by the historic Christian tradition. But it's not just that. It's not just those scriptural texts. And in fact, early Christian theologians were also drawing heavily on Greek philosophy. And so Greek philosophy and Greco-Roman ways of thinking shaped so much of the world in which these scriptures were read and interpreted in the first few centuries after the Jesus story emerged. So it's not this pure reading of the text, but it's the reading of the text in a world which is shaped by, uh, in particular, a kind of Greek philosophical uh, set of options. And one of the things that becomes really apparent when you look at the way the early Christian theologians, and in fact many since, have talked about God is the way that they think about God as this unmoved, detached, unaffected deity. And this conception of the Christian God in particular was actually grounded in Greek philosophical roots. People like Plato and Aristotle and even the Stoics. And then was particularly embraced and established and rooted into Christian theology by church theologians like St. Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin. So... We're going to do a little bit of thinking through this philosophical world of these ancient Greek philosophers, its intersection with Christianity, and what that has to do with how we think about reality now. So bear with me while we work our way through a little bit of this. So let's start with Plato, several hundred years before Jesus. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bastardize Plato a little bit here and just talk about it in very general terms. I don't do this to dehumanize him or to objectify him, but simply to try and talk very briefly about a couple of ways that Plato may have saw seen the world. Uh, In general terms, we could say that Plato viewed the world through two categories, non-physical reality and physical reality. And in Plato's mind, non-physical reality is more pure, uh, more real, we might even say, than physical reality. So the ideal form of something, for example, the idea of something could be pure, whereas the physical form of something was corrupted by its kind of material existence, you know. So if you think about like a cup, Well, the idea of a cup where you can get to like the pure ideal form of the cup in your mind and using your rationality and reason, but as soon as that cup becomes material, becomes physical, well, it's it's distorted, it's broken, it's imperfect. You can't have a perfect cup, you can only have a perfect idea of a cup. And so in that sense, what you can see in Plato's worldview, what's often called platonic dualism, is that the non-physical world, this world of ideals this word, world of ideas, um, is more pure, more good, more true than the physical embodied world we actually uh, think we're living in, think we experience. Um, So in this kind of way then for Plato, the non-physical soul is the most pure and real thing about what it means about, about humanness, about what a human being is, as compared with the physical body you inhabit, which is obviously corrupt and imperfect and broken. 
Now, the implications for all of this, you might be thinking, why on earth are we talking about this? Well, just follow along. We'll get there. Um, Reason and philosophy and rationality in this kind of world are much closer to the ideal than things like working with your hands or some kind of embodied reality. So people who spent their time pondering abstract ideas or what we might call abstract ideas, uh, pondering philosophical truths, realities, rationality, uh, these were the people who were drawing much closer to the divine, to the pure, to the ideal uh, than people who were doing things like, I don't know, maybe they were carpenters or uh, drain layers, if there was such a thing. I'm not sure if there was. Don't quote me on that. Um, in this sense too, I think this is a part of the way in which women were seen as being less than because women, by very nature of the fact that they bring children into the world and, and, and all of that, were seen as being more physical and embodied and material in that sense and therefore more corrupt and imperfect, which is not... Not great. Um, so you have this, this this kind of two-layered world. You have the non-physical world, which is the better one, the pure, the more pure, the more uh, true. And then you have the physical world, which is corrupted and distorted. And in, any, in this kind of framework, any conceptions of God or of the ultimate reality uh, that we might call God must be in this, in this world of the non-physical world. Uh, so the most pure, the most rational, the most ideal, this is closer to God. So in this framework, again, for Plato then, reason and emotion are really at opposite ends of the spectrum. So reason for Plato draws us towards the divine, draws us towards the ultimate true, uh, but emotion takes us towards the contaminated physical flesh and therefore is something negative, something to be avoided. Then following Plato, Aristotle he did hold to a more holistic human soul than Plato. He, he, he differed at significant points with Plato. But he still did hold to this idea of reason and rationality as, as far superior to emotion and to passion. So what this all does to a view of God is that God, in, in, in this whole conceptual way of seeing the world, must be the timeless one, the unchanging one, the absolute one the one who is completely in control and the one who is not affected by anything outside of God. So because God is the most pure ideal thing there is, God cannot be affected or influenced or uh, moved by anything else. God, uh, Aristotle's term for God is the unmoved mover. Which means really that God has the capacity to move all things, but, but God was unmoved by anything. God, by definition, cannot be affected or moved by anything or anyone. So Plato would say that if God were to change, well, that would be incongruent with perfection, because change to a perfect being could only be changed for the worse, right? And God, by definition, can't get worse. Right, hope you're tracking with that. In a similar vein, the Stoics, who are another sort of um, philosophical uh, framework within the, the Greek and the Greco-Roman world, the Stoics believed that the human soul was divided into two compartments. So the upper compartment really was where reason resided. And that was related to the divine nature in humanity and was an extension of order and light and power. And in the lower compartment, if you like, of the human soul was the realm of emotion. And this was much more related to the animal nature and humanity and was what they called carnal and unruly, and generally speaking, the source of disaster and evil. 
which again means that all concepts of emotion must be excluded from any talk about deity or divinity. Ultimately, what this all kind of means is that passion, emotion, is seen as a danger to humanity, and the wise person must therefore strive to attain apatheia, complete freedom from emotions. This is what we strive for in this kind of world. Now, apatheia, that's where we get the word apathy from. And so God, in this sense, is the ultimate apathetic one. The one who is unmoved, unaffected, pure, distant from all pain, all suffering, unchanging, independent, and so on. Okay, so how does that then connect into Christianity? Well... Significant church theologians, as I mentioned earlier, like Augustine and Aquinas in the Catholic tradition, and then Calvin in the Protestant tradition, uh, central figures in the theology of the Western church, uh, followed really firmly along with this unchanging and unaffected nature of God idea. That really they had not, I don't think, drawn from uh, the Judeo-Christian texts, but had really drawn from the Greek and Greco-Roman philosophical tradition. And what they did is they brought these ideas to the very centre of the Christian theological tradition. And the impact of this on conceptions of God and of what really matters is that virtues like empathy and compassion are held in much lower esteem than the ability to have the correct set of ideas, propositions and beliefs. And if you take this to its conclusion, then being right about a particular doctrine or belief is ultimately much more important than people's experience and what is actually happening for them. And this is one way in which the way we see God can lead actually to the justification of exclusion, of othering, of oppression, because empathy and understanding is less important than being correct. Now, take that kind of package and put that together with another package that says that being correct is also the way you get to heaven. In other words, if you believe the right things, then you're saved for eternity. And if you don't believe the right things, then you're condemned for eternity. Well, then again, you you have this potent mixture for marginalizing people who question and who doubt or those for whom their life experiences and suffering and pain cause them to move away from a concrete and very binary way of seeing the world. So in the end, what you can have is people who say that how my beliefs impact on those who are suffering is less important than my ability to say that I am right. And I don't think this is something that is limited to Christianity or even to religion, but this impact of this uh, set of assumptions that sits at the heart of Western society, and, and, and well, that's the society I guess I can talk about, is shaped by this kind of worldview. In fact, modernity itself is shaped very much by that kind of worldview. Uh, And so, what do we do with this? Well, I want to suggest that empathy is vital to recover and is in fact central to our ability to flourish in human communities. And without it, we are destined for conflict, for exclusion, maybe even for violence. And so, what I want to do with the remainder of this podcast episode is to talk briefly about an empathetic approach to theology. So what do I mean by that? Well, the reality is, I think, that the Christian embrace of this detached, distant, and unaffected God is, in fact, a long, long, long way from the Jesus story that's supposed to sit at the heart of the tradition. 
And this is important because, again, to come back to this, what we believe sits at the heart of reality itself so profoundly shapes the things that we believe matter and our way of being in the world. So who or what sits at the heart of reality? Is it apathy? Is it emotional distance? Is it anger? Is it love? Is it kindness? Is it empathy? And if it's some of those latter attributes, which I think it is, then this must shape the entire way we go about thinking theologically about things. As I've already mentioned several times in the first few episodes of this podcast, and I keep talking about it, I guess because I I think it's so important, the Christian scriptures are shaped deeply by pain, by suffering, by doubt, and by the fact that the central narrative of Jesus is about participation in that suffering. And... You know, if there's anything true to the Christian claim that divinity is found uniquely in this Jesus story, and I don't know that we can prove that to anyone, but if there's anything true to that claim, then whoever and whatever God is, the hope is that the divine is present somehow, even in the experience of pain, in the experience of suffering and aloneness, there is still some kind of presence. And this means that empathy and participation uh, is central to the entire Christian theological project. Uh, It's important not just because it's good to care about people, you know, and that seems like a good Christian thing to think about, but it's central to the entire movement. It's central to the entire narrative of the Judeo-Christian text. It's not a secondary question to ask about the impact of our beliefs of those who are on the margins or those who are in pain or those who are suffering or those who are questioning or find themselves in doubt. In fact, it's this question that should always be front and centre in the journey of what I want to say is an empathetic and therefore Christian theology. So, in reflection on this then, here's a couple of questions I'd like to pose. And I guess these questions are for all of us. They're for me too people who are wanting to wrestle with belief and belonging and exclusion and faith. So the first question to ask ourselves, what words do you use to describe someone who disagrees with you or is different to you? I think a genuine reflection on this question can give us the opportunity for real insight. Uh, Martin Buber was a philosopher in the early to mid-20th century, and he talks about two ways we can view the world. We can view the world through the paradigm of I-thou, or we can view the world through the paradigm of I-it. In other words, do we see the other that we engage with as an it, as an object, or as a thou, a you, a subject, a human to know and experience? Do we see the world in terms of I-thou or I-it? When we encounter another person, do we encounter them in an I-thou relationship or in an I-it relationship? And really, the crux of this idea is that to enter into a world of wholeness and openness requires us to see one another in the context of I-thou. Now, it might sound super obvious, like, you know, yeah, sure, tell us something else that we already know. Um, but there are many ways we don't get this. We treat others as objects rather than as true subjects. Now, you'll know this, not necessarily by the way you treat others, although you might see that, but many of us have known what it's like to be treated as an object 
rather than as a subject. To be treated as an it rather than as thou. And sometimes that's just trivial. Sometimes that's just when you are, you know, working in retail and someone just does not see you as a human person at all, but as an object in the way between them and a sale. Um, So it can be kind of, you know, in the trivial day-to-day, but it can also be deeply wounding to be treated as an it. So let's bring this back to the question, how do we speak about people we disagree with or who are different from us? If we pay attention to our words, do we speak of them in terms of a category rather than as a human being and as a subject? Do we use words that speak of them like an object rather than a human being and a subject? Do we speak of them in ways that diminish their humanness or are we able to retain that humanity even in deep and profound disagreement or conflict? Research on our brains shows that the amygdala in our brain fires when we encounter someone who disagrees with us. Um, the amygdala is, is where fight or flight is governed, right? And it's the more ancient part of our brain. It's the instinctual reptilian part of our brain, if you like, um, that fires up when we encounter someone who disagrees with us. We see them as a threat. And our prefrontal cortex, which involves our ability to reflect, uh, it can get overwhelmed by the fight or flight response that it's that is triggered by the amygdala. And so the amygdala doesn't just fire when we see a lion in the woods. I don't know, do you see lions in woods? I don't know. Let's, let's, let's say we do. Um, but it's not just that kind of uh, fear response that triggers that fight or flight. It can also be just somebody who disagrees with us because there's something in our psyche that says, I want to find people who are safe, with whom I can belong, so that I can be protected. And because this is such a deep instinctual response, it poses us a real challenge, right? We need to in some, we need to find ways to remind ourselves, find practices, we might even say, that help us to pause and ask ourselves a different set of questions. And I honestly think that this is one of the things that healthy spirituality can actually do for us. It can give us ways, it can give us practices to pause, to reflect, and to be curious instead of reactive. And so when we think even about the role of meditation, even certain forms of music and silence, uh, that's what they're helping us to do. Or in the Christian tradition, it's also been the place of prayer. One of the provocative things that Jesus says in his you know, famous Sermon on the Mount is that we pray for our enemies. And you know that was provocative in a day and age where the Jewish people were being oppressed and bullied and manipulated and overrun and violently treated by a Roman empire and by Roman soldiers. And yet Jesus suggests that their way forward is somehow to learn to pray for their enemies. And I wonder whether that's because in that process of pausing, you enter into a place of seeing their humanity right in the midst of our instinctual desire to attack to defend ourselves or to run, to objectify and to dehumanize. Instead, we are invited to explore a different posture that might actually lead us in some way to a different outcome. It doesn't guarantee the other person changes, but it actually enhances our ability to see the humanity in the other. Okay, so the first question, what words do you use to describe someone who disagrees with you or who is different to you? 
The second question, how would someone in pain experience what you have to say? And this question of is not, it's probably worth saying this, this is not the best question to ask if you're looking for efficiency, speed, and rapid organizational growth, right? How would someone in pain experience what you have to say? Because that's, it's like a supplementary question if you are trying to get on with things. Maybe it's a question you think about, uh, or maybe it's a question the HR person in your organisation sort of comes up with as a little, we should probably think about, you know, um, how this might affect the people in pain. Uh, or with if, if you're in a church community, then it's like, but we've got to get on with the thing, so let's not worry so much about that. Maybe we've got someone who will take care of those kinds of people. But I think it's an important question to keep asking ourselves and to keep bringing back to the centre. If our beliefs and the way we express them are harmful to people in pain, then it's a good idea to ask some serious questions of those beliefs. This is not just out of some secondary reminder to be a kind person, but it's actually central, I think, to the entire way of healthy spirituality, the entire way of doing theology from a Christian perspective, I think. It's a question that sits at the centre of the Christian story. So how would someone in pain experience what you have to say? This is not uh, to then, this is not some kind of idealistic, you know, well, um, you never never upset anybody, never offend anybody, never say anything that, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm asking us the question, how does what we believe and the way we believe it impact on those people who are experiencing pain, suffering, marginalisation? Because that's a really important question to ask. Okay, so those are the two questions that I want to leave us all with, that I confront myself with. What words do I use to describe those people who disagree with me <laughs> or who are different to me? And how does someone in pain experience what I have to say? And those are two questions, I think, that can help us as we navigate a world of conflict and exclusion and a fear of the other. So... That's all for this episode. Our next episode will be the last one before Christmas. And then we're going to be into a new series in early 2019. Gosh, how exciting. Uh, and there's so much more to talk about. So I am looking forward to it. So until next time, I'll see you later.